BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Guys, with all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host and reader and friend and maybe your lover, Michael Ian Black. I am certainly your ear lover, which is to say, I love that you're allowing me into your ears and I hope that I am making sweet, sweet love to those years. When last we left Jude, or as I like to refer to him, poor, miserable, pathetic Jude, things were looking down because things always look down for Jude. And he had gotten into this fight with his new bride, Arabella, who had confessed to him that, in fact, she is not pregnant, was never pregnant and lied about it in that that was fine, essentially taking the Trump defense, which is, no, I never met with any Russians. All right, maybe I met with a couple Russians. All right, maybe I met with all the Russians, but there's nothing wrong with meeting with Russians, and we certainly didn't collude. Well, maybe we colluded just a little bit, but it was fine. We have every right to collude. That's basically what Arabella was saying. Jude is making the argument, which I think is a very good argument, essentially, but you you have fucked up my entire life. The chapter ends somewhat enigmatically with her melting down the pig fat while staring him in the eyes, basically stirring her cauldron's brew. Remember from the very beginning, I said to you, watch out for this weird sister. She is going to be trouble. And in fact, she is. And so now she's literally at the cauldron, stirring the pig fat into lard while making this argument. And he's saying, why are you doing that? Why do you fuss yourself about melting down that pig's fat tonight? Please put it away. And she says, well, then I must do it tomorrow morning. It won't keep. And he says, very well, do. And then that's the end of the chapter with them arguing over pig fat. And so now we begin... Chapter 11. Next morning, which was Sunday, she resumed operations about 10 o'clock, and the renewed work recalled the conversation which had accompanied it the night before and put her back into the same intractable temper. Well, that's the story about me and Mary Green, is it? That I entrapped thee? Much of a catch you were, Lord send. As she warmed, she saw some of Jude's dear ancient classics on a table where they ought not to have been laid. What's she going to do? What's she going to do with these classics? I won't have them books here in the way. 
she cried petulantly, and seizing them one by one, she began throwing them upon the floor. Leave my books alone, he said. You might have thrown them aside if you had liked, but as to soiling them like that, it is disgusting. In the operation of making lard, Arabella's hands had become smeared with the hot grease, and her fingers consequently left very perceptible imprints on the book covers. She continued deliberately to toss the books severally upon the floor till Jude, incensed beyond bearing, and we have never seen Jude incensed beyond bearing. This is, I don't know what he's going to do. I haven't read beyond that word, but we've never seen him boil over. So now there's two things boiling, the pig fat and Jude himself caught her by the arms to make her leave off. Somehow in doing so, he loosened the fastening of her hair and it rolled about her ears. So uh, uh, I guess he, what, unclipped her hair? Let me go, she said. Promise to leave the books alone. She hesitated. Let me go. She repeated, promise, after a pause, I do. Jude relinquished his hold, and so I don't know that he was hurting her exactly. He was holding on to her. So it sounds like he was giving her kind of like one of those, um, you know, when you're a brother and a sister and you kind of got your, your sibling in like a little arm lock, and, and or maybe he's holding her by the hair, I don't know. But there is clearly the threat of violence now for the first time from Jude, who until this point has been really such a pacifist, almost a passiveist. He's been so passive in his own life. Events swirl around him, and although he has always had a fixed aim to get to Christminster, at least he did until Arabella, uh, he was very passive. And he allowed uh, extraneous events to kind of inform him and he would sort of try to navigate his way through those uh, shoals. And so now he is being a little more active and a little bit rageful. And I don't like where this is going with Jude. And I hope you don't either. If Jude starts to turn to drink, for example, things could get very bad. And we know how those Brits drink. God, they don't stop. If you ever go to England, what you'll see is uh, if you remember that old comic strip, Andy Cap, where the British guy, he, wear, he wears a cap and he's just going about drinking beer all day and having arguments with his wife. That's all it is in Britain. It's it's literally a nation of Andy Caps stumbling through the streets. It's amazing they get anything done at all. Thank God it's an island. Jude relinquished his hold, and she crossed the room to the door, out of which she went with a set face and into the highway. Here she began to saunter up and down, perversely pulling her hair into a worse disorder than he had caused, and unfastening several buttons of her gown. It was a fine Sunday morning, dry, clear, and frosty, and the bells of Alfredston Church could be heard on the breeze from the north. Now, if you remember episodes ago, there were other bells calling to uh, Jude from Christminster, and those bells he imagined singing these words, we are happy here, we are happy here, <laughs> and there are there is no such imagining uh, of We Are Happy Here, coming from the bells of Alfredston Church, where Arabella and Jude are now living. 
People were going along the road, dressed in their holiday clothes. They were mainly lovers, such pairs as Jude and Arabella had been when they sported along the same track some months earlier. These pedestrians turned to stare at the extraordinary spectacle she now presented, bonnetless, her disheveled hair blowing in the wind, her bodice apart, her sleeves rolled above her elbows for her work, and her hands reeking with melted fat. One of the passers said in mock terror, Good Lord, deliver us! <laughs> I don't know if that was a good mock terror reading, but if you if you could have seen me, I sort of raised my hands like uh, like uh, jazz hands and 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 sort of wiggled them as I said it. And maybe it was a good interpretation of the bad interpretation that that person had done, but I will not say it was a very good reading. See how he served me, she cried. Making me work Sunday mornings when I ought to be going to my church and tearing my hair off my head and my gown off my back. Oh, God, she is atrocious. So what she said, she's accusing him now of basically <laughs> ripping her hair down and uh, rending her bodice. You know what I mean? Like she's she we we he just, Thomas Hardy just said she unbuttoned her own gown. And Arabella is not a church going last to begin with. When she was trying to seduce him, she sent her parents off to church so that she could fuck him in her house. So let's not pretend, Arabella, uh, that you are the church going sort. But what she's trying to do now, she's so furious at Jude that she's trying to get him busted. Uh, Jude was exasperated and went out to drag her in by main force. So, you know, times were different then. He's trying to just grab her and bring her in. Then he suddenly lost his heat, illuminated with the sense that all was over between them and that it mattered not what she did or he, her husband stood still regarding her. Their lives were ruined, he thought, ruined by the fundamental error of their matrimonial union, that of having based a permanent contract on a temporary feeling which had no necessary connection with affinities that alone render a lifelong comradeship tolerable. Right. He was horny. We'll be back. This is Obscure. Hey, Jude fans, listen up. While you are waiting for new episodes of Obscure, check out the new season of the Andy Daly Podcast Project. Each episode, Andy and Matt Gourley bring to life a podcast idea that's hosted by a strange character, like the cowboy poet Dalton Wilcox, or a Scottish supernatural tour guide. It's not Scottish. That wasn't a Scottish accent. Earwolf fans have been asking for more episodes of this incredible podcast for years, and now Andy is back with a bunch of new podcast pilots. If you love sketch comedy like The State and Stella, this podcast is about as close as it gets. Oh, and they have fancy guests like Paul F. Tompkins, Lauren Lapkus, Jason Manzukas, and Matt Besser. You probably know 
Andy from his Comedy Central show review or his memorable characters in other shows like Silicon Valley and Modern Family or from his cast of truly insane improv characters or like me, you know, Andy, just as a super nice guy and funny. And he's in those CarMax commercials. Season two is out in podcast apps right now. Subscribe to the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project and Stitcher Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and you'll get a new pilot every Thursday. You're listening to Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Let us return to the text going to ill-use me on principle as your father ill-used your mother and your father's sister ill-used her husband? She asked. All you be a queer lot as husbands and wives. Jude fixed an arrested, surprised look on her, but she said no more and continued her saunter till she was tired. He left the spot and after wandering vaguely a little while, walked in the direction of Mary Green. Here he called upon his great aunt, whose infirmities daily increased. Aunt, did my father ill-use my mother and my aunt her husband? said Jude abruptly, sitting down by the fire. She raised her ancient eyes under the rim of the bygone bonnet that she always wore. Who's been telling you that? she said. I have heard it spoken of and want to know it all. So we didn't know. Hold on. I got to look. I'm recording this on a Sunday morning and I have in my possession my traditional cup of English breakfast tea and I'm finding myself already a bit parched with all the acrimony. And so I need to take a sip of my English breakfast tea. Do hold. Delicious. So I've heard it spoken of, and I want to know it all. You med so well, I suppose. Though your wife, I reckon twice she must have been a fool to open up that. There isn't, I gotta turn the page, there isn't much to know after all. Your father and mother couldn't get on together, and they parted. It was coming home from Alfredston Market when you were a baby, on the hill by that brown house barn. And we know the brown house barn is a symbol for consequential decisions. It is the place from which all consequence springs, whether to stay in Mary Green, whether to go to Christminster. It was the site where uh, he and she took a walk and he had to decide where which direction he was going to take. And he took the direction of the pig farmer. She and so, um, yeah, that brown house barn, that is that's no joke. So it was coming home from Alfredston Market when you were a baby on the hill by the brown house barn that they had their last difference and took leave of one another for the last time. Your mother soon afterwards died. She drowned herself in short. I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I should not laugh. My God. I mean, so we know that his mother died. We know both his parents are dead. That's all we know about Jude up until this point. After they died, he came to live with his aunt. So now we find out 
not only did she drown herself, it was after he was born by the brown, and they were on the brown, by the brown house barn. They had their last difference. They separated. She's like, fuck it. She drowned herself in short, and your father went away with you to South Wessex and never came here anymore. Jude recalled his father's silence about North Wessex and Jude's mother, never speaking of either till his dying day. It was the same with your father's sister. Her husband offended her, and she so disliked living with him afterwards that she went away to London with her little maid. The Fowleys were not made for wedlock. And and the aunt had said this before, earlier. She had said that to Jude, that very thing, and we didn't know why. And the aunt has never married, and now maybe we know why the aunt hasn't married. Because the Fowleys were not made for wedlock. It never seemed to sit well upon us. There's summat in our blood that won't take kindly to the notion of being bound to do what we do readily enough if not bound. That's why you ought to have hearkened to me and not have married. Well, you know, first of all, aunt, you're a tough one to listen to. From the very beginning, you've said it would have been better if you died. So right away, it's sort of like you're undercutting your own authority with that assertion. When you're constantly saying that to a child, it would have been better had you been dead, right? So to then turn around and say, oh, and you should have listened to me. Well, then if you if you should have listened to her about that, then he should have listened to her about being dead. And he should have killed himself as he had fantasized about long before uh, when he was still just a boy. He had wished himself to be uh, to be no more. And now we're finding out that suicide actually runs at least a little bit in the family. Uh, and then Jude says, where did father and mother part? By the brown house, did you say? So Jude recognizes, as I do, that that brown house barn is uh, is significant. A little further on, where the road to Fenworth branches off and the handpost stands. A gibbet, gibbet? A gibbet? A gibbet? G-I-B-B-E-T. I'll say gibbet because it sounds funnier. A gibbet once stood there, not unconnected with our history, but let that be. Oh, so now we're going to learn about this gibbet, gibbet. Uh, and I should probably look it up, but I didn't. Oh, God, hold on a second. So I have in my possession, uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I bought it almost specifically for this purpose. I have a, a set of dictionaries, 14 from 1909 or something that I picked up at a book sale for 20 bucks. And I thought as I was contemplating this podcast that it might be very helpful. So these are leather bound giant volumes. And I'm going to go get one and look up how to pronounce this word and in fact what it is. All right, so uh, I've got my dictionary here. This is volume four. I've got glow lamp. I've got gib, gibber, gibber fishing, gibberose, gibberosity, gibbet, gibbet. I was pronouncing it correctly. A large stick. A large stick? A sort of arm, a weapon, an implement for stirring the earth. That's probably the meaning that they mean. An implement for stirring the earth and rooting up plants, kind of like a hoe. Ooh. Oh, dear. Also, a kind of gallows. A wooden structure consisting of an upright post with an arm projecting from the top on which malefactors were formerly hanged in chains. Oh my God. Sometimes as the famous gibbet of Montfaucon, uh, 
near Paris. A considerable structure with numerous uprights of masonry. Oh, dear. And we know that Jude himself is a stonemason, connected by several tiers of crossbeams and with pits beneath it in which the remains were cast when they fell from the chains. Hence, a gallows of any form. Okay, so I think we know where this is going. Somebody was killed on the gibbet. Somebody in Jude's family. Oh, dear. I mean, this is really... I mean, when I said things were looking down at the beginning of this episode, I had no idea. I had no idea they were going to look this down. So Jude is has lost something, which is to say his marriage, but he has discovered something too. And what he has discovered is that his family, his parents, uh, are disasters, and that he himself is descended from disasters, uh, and and uh, all all his family, his aunt, his uncle. It's a long genealogy now of disastrous people killing themselves and getting hung on, by chains until their bodies fell into a pit. That's that's essentially what he's discovered. So he's having a good day. Okay, a gibbet once stood there, not unconnected with our history, <laughs> but let that be. I mean, if it's me, and my aunt, my great aunt is like, oh, and and the thing that you hang people from, like, I got a story to tell you about that, but let's not, you know what, let's just have some cake. If it was me, I'd be like, whoa, 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 dear auntie, let's not skip over that part. Maybe just let's let's talk about that for a second. Uh, he does not, though. However, he does in fact let that be. In the dusk of that evening, Jude walked away from his old aunts as if to go home. But as soon as he reached the open down, he struck out upon it till he came to a large round pond. The frost continued, though it was not particularly sharp, and the larger stars overhead came out slow and flickering. Jude put one foot on the edge of the ice. He's going to, I mean, he, look, there's a lot of book left. He's not going to drown himself, so I'm not worried about it. But uh, it, it appears that's where this is heading. Jude put one foot on the edge of the ice and then the other. It cracked under his weight, but this did not deter him. He plowed his way inward to the center, the ice making sharp noises as he went. When just about the middle he looked around him and gave a jump. The cracking repeated itself, but he did not go down. He jumped again, but the cracking had ceased. Jude went back to the edge and stepped upon the ground. So this was kind of a half-hearted suicide attempt by Jude. He walked to the middle of the lake on the ice. He jumped twice to crack the ice to fall in, to let himself plunge to the depths. But it didn't work because nothing Jude does works. This is Obscure. You're listening to Obscure. And now back to the book. It was curious, he thought. What was he reserved for? He supposed he was not a sufficiently dignified person for suicide. Peaceful death abhorred him as a subject and would not take him. 
So in his mind, he's going, I'm not even good enough to kill myself. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. I don't. But I mean, one of the things I love about this book, as I have said repeatedly, is just Hardy just lays it on layer after layer after layer. He's just he's got the butter knife out. He's got the lard and he's just spreading it on thick. And I love it. What could he do of a lower kind than self-extermination? What was there less noble, more in keeping with his present degraded position? And then here it comes. Remember, I just said this. I just said this. He could get drunk. Of course, that was it. He had forgotten. Drinking was the regular, stereotyped resource of the despairing worthless. He began to see now why some men boozed at inns. He struck down the hill northwards and came to an obscure public house. On entering and sitting down, the sight of the picture of Samson and Delilah on the wall caused him to recognize the place as that he had visited with Arabella on that first Sunday evening of their courtship. You remember he, they went there and they had tea and he, he was so prim and proud and proper. And now he has come there in this place of Samson and Delilah. Oh, wait, what happened with Samson and Delilah? <laughs> I know Samson cut off his hair, was the source of his strength. Delilah did something. I'm guessing it wasn't good. I don't know if Delilah's the bad guy in that scenario. I don't suppose the dictionary will tell me the story. Uh, he called for liquor and drank briskly for an hour or more. Staggering homeward late that night with all his sense of depression gone and his head fairly clear still. He began to laugh boisterously and to wonder how Arabella would receive him in his new aspect. If if she's even there. And then it says right right, the next thing it says, the house was in darkness when he entered and in his stumbling state, it was some time before he could get a light. Then he found that though the marks of pig dressings of fats and scallops were visible, the materials themselves had been taken away, right? A line written by his wife on the inside of an old envelope was pinned to the cotton blower of the fireplace. Have gone to my friends, shall not return. Well, that is the best news he's gotten all day, isn't it? Hallelujah. Like, that's exactly what Jude needs. I don't know that Jude has the strength in him to leave her, because I think underneath the anger, the depression, the sorrow is still uh, the heart of a good Christian boy. And he has taken these vows, and I think it's very hard for him to disentangle himself from them. And so she has left, and it's best for both of them if she does not return. All the next day, he remained at home and sent off for the carcass of the pig to Alfredston. He then cleaned up the premises, locked the door, put the key in a place she would know if she came back, and returned to his masonry at Alfredston. At night, when he again plodded home, he found she had not visited the house. The next day went in the same way, and the next. Then there came a letter from her.
That she had grown tired of him, she frankly admitted. Good. Good. He was such a slow old coach, and she did not care for the sort of life he led. What? I... What life? He... He apprenticed himself to a stonemason. He's trying to get his shit together. He's working for half wages until he can strike out on his own. She fucking uh, lied to him about being pregnant to trap him. He works his ass off and she's not happy with the way he is comporting himself. Arabella, my dear, look in the glass. See yourself reflected there. There was no prospect of his ever bettering himself or her. She further went on to say that her parents had, as he knew, for some time considered the question of emigrating to Australia. Great! The pig-jobbing business being a poor one nowadays. They had at last decided to go, and she proposed to go with them if he had no objection. A woman of her sort would have more chance over there than in this stupid country. And that is what she said. This stupid country. And she's, you know, she's right. I mean, look, she's in Wessex. They know her there. Look, we all know everybody knows each other in Wessex. She's kind of wrung out her welcome there, I would think. People are going to be talking about Arabella. People are going to be talking about Jude. She said she was pregnant. She wasn't pregnant. They're gonna, at best, they're going to feel pity for her. She's a pig farmer. Pig farming is drying up clearly in Wessex. The family's going to go to Australia. The best thing she could possibly do is go down under and you know, start listening to Minute Work and have herself a ripe old time and just do like the Australian thing for a little bit right? Just get, 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 get the hell out, right? Go to Sydney, go to Melbourne, go to Perth, (laughs) go to Victoria, go somewhere and start again, start fresh. And it would be so good for Jude. He could resume his studies. He could pick up his folios now stained with pig grease as a reminder of his time with Arabella. He could get back to his studies. He could get to Christminster. It is the best possible decision for everybody. And there is no chance that it's going to work out for either of them. Jude replied that he had not the least objection to her going. He thought it a wise course, yes, since she wished to go, and one that might be to the advantage of both. Exactly. He enclosed in the packet containing the letter the money that had been realized by the sale of the pig with all he had besides, which was not much. So he's doing the right thing. He's doing the best that he possibly can, right? A few days ago, he had tried to kill himself for the first time. I don't know if he's going to try to kill himself again. I suspect perhaps maybe that's even how the book ends. I don't know. I don't know. Even though he's not good enough even to kill himself. (laughs) I I mean, can you imagine feeling that badly about yourself that you don't even feel good enough to kill yourself? I just want to hug Jude. I really do. I feel terrible for Jude. All is once again lost for Jude. He is doomed to obscurity. But we're still early in the book, guys. And 
there there must be some redemption in here somewhere. I'm only about oh I don't know a third two uh, less than half way through the book. There's a lot more suffering to go, but it cannot be unremitting suffering. There has to be some joy to come for Jude. There has to be. I'm holding on to that promise as we continue our journey together. But for today, I fear we must pause as Jude has now given everything. He has given everything he has to Arabella in the hopes of ridding himself of her and this terrible, tragic mistake that he made. What will happen? Will she take the money and go with her parents to Australia? Will she take the money and use it to contrive some punishment for Jude? We don't know. But we will find out on the next thrilling episode of Obscure. Until next time, I am your reader, friend, literary scholar, and ear lover, Michael Ian Black. I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why Did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hold on, Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs> <laughs>